like we're all equal truly we're all divine beings truly and if we can really understand that and stop rejecting ourselves for all of these different categories and then start to let the fear dissipate you know i think that's how you that's how you step into this philosophy of hokahe All right, welcome back, everybody. We're here for another episode of Comeback Stories, and today's guest is Aubrey Marcus. Aubrey's the founder of On It, a lifestyle brand based on a political health philosophy he calls total human optimization. Aubrey's a New York Times bestseller. He's the host of the Aubrey Marcus podcast, which has, I think, over like 50 million downloads, maybe way more than that by now. He's the founding member of Fit for Service Fellowship and I just know Aubrey's doing amazing things in the world and somebody who's always down to do the work. So we're we're glad to have you here today, my man. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, brother. So we get we get right into it and we want to know for you, like, can you tell us a little bit about what growing up for you was like? I think one of the things that stands out to me about growing up is, you know, my mom and dad, they split when I was about two years old. And very quickly I had two step parents. And Every single, so I had ended up having four parents, and every single one of my parents was absolutely exceptional at what they did in the world. So my mom was a professional tennis player, made it to the semifinals of Wimbledon, lost to Billie Jean King in '68. My stepdad was a SWAT team squadron commander, and my dad was one of the you know true market wizards, one of like the founding fathers of commodities trading. He's written about in a book actually called Market Wizards. And my stepmom was a top naturopathic doctor that worked with all of Pat Riley's basketball teams. So the Lakers in the 80s and the Knicks in the 90s and the Heat in the 2000s and beyond. So this was kind of this really unique environment where I didn't just have, you know, two people with different information sets and things that I could emulate before with really radically different skill sets. And I think that gave me my real well-rounded overview on life and also a lot of pressure to kick a lot of ass, I would say. That's amazing. Four parents who clearly were at the top of their game. Mm -hmm. We like to kind of shape the story with some early memories of pain or early memories of struggles that you have. Can you maybe share a couple of those with us? Well, you know, my dad, um, we had a great relationship, but you know, he had, uh, he could go into bouts of anger. And I think some of my most painful memories were experiencing those moments of like just intense rage. And I think those were some of the early traumatic events that really shaped a lot of my communication skills because the anger would be based on something that I said that I didn't necessarily mean or some way that something I was taken was interpreted a different way. And so it really got me hyperintuitive as far as how I could use my language and use communication to be effective. So ultimately it became a blessing, but not without, you know, its own cost, because I also have a voice in my head that's always analyzing everything I say, because I was trained that if I do it wrong, there's going to be stark consequences. So that was one area that I think was challenging. I also just put a lot of pressure on myself. You know, I really wanted to perform at my best. So I would get really down on myself. And that's something that's, you know, I'm still working on today is I have the expectations of absolute peak performance at all times. And certainly, you know, you can't argue with the results that I've had in the world, but nonetheless, was it a pleasant journey to get all these results? Not always. 
So, you know, I've done a lot of work to try and mitigate that, but you know, it's still a work in progress. The internal judge, what I like to call the coach is pretty harsh. It's like one of those old school coaches, like Bobby Knight that throws the chair out on the basketball court, you know, and, and yells at people and makes you run suicides all the time. So that's what the coach is inside my own head. And I'm trying to make it more like Pete Carroll, like a lot of clapping in the hands and smacks on the ass and let's get them boys. I love that. You know, you, you mentioned pressure we've had, it makes me think of a couple of guests. So we had Alex Smith on who talked about, you know, being the number one draft pick when he was playing with the 49ers and how he had put so much pressure on himself that he hated his job starting quarterback in the NFL and did not want was miserable showing up to work every day. And then we just recently had somebody else on Drew Robinson. If you've seen the uh, ESPN um, E60 called alive, he was the one that tried to commit suicide, shot himself, ended up living, but it's the same story. Like he had put so much pressure on himself that he, you know, didn't want to live anymore. So it's just fascinating how a lot of the high performers and, and high achievers, they get to where they are because of that internal dialogue. But at the same time, the outside stuff is all there, but internally they're just dying and miserable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, I often wonder, you know, whether someone like myself or someone like Alex Smith or someone, you know, all of these stories that you mentioned, I wonder if actually that mindset was necessary. I think we say that to say, well, you know, it got you there, but maybe you didn't need to get there. It's not like Pete Carroll needs to change his coaching style to have the Seahawks win the Super Bowl. There's many, many ways to get there. And perhaps we would have all gotten there and maybe even gotten there in a better way if we didn't have that judge. And I really believe that that's most likely the scenario. It's hard to say because there's no A-B split test to have me live two different separate lives, one in which I have a different internal mindset and the other where I had the same mindset that I did. You can't run that test, so it's impossible to know. Uh, But I have a feeling that we all too often will excuse some actual poor mindset techniques by you know, justifying them with certain levels of performance. But I think the performance would be there anyways, because I know when I've played my best basketball games, when I've delivered my best speeches, when I write my best work, when I'm at my best is when that internal negative coach, when that coach is out of the room, the harder I am on myself, the more paralyzed I am, the more afraid I am, the more restricted I am in my own performance. So I, I actually think that the question should be, wow, what could you have accomplished if you had a more positive mindset rather than, you know, oh, you could have enjoyed it more, but maybe you wouldn't be where you were. I think I'd be even farther because I think it's only a hindrance. Yeah. And I think it's a, obviously an energy suck and a very deflating tone that it, we, Darren and I coach a lot around the four agreements and you're talking about the judge, right? Or the, mm-hmm. paras- the parasite that the author talks about sure. that it's either the, the judge or the victim. Right. And constantly uh, looking at those ways where we're judging, we're either judging ourselves or we're judging other people. But typically, if we're really judgmental towards other people, we're probably 10 times as judgmental on ourselves. Always. Yeah, Um, always. Sounds like you had obviously a lot of good teachers growing up, but who was your first real teacher? I mean, all my parents were my first real teachers. You know, I mean, when you if you want to talk about outside of that, you know, like my first real mentor. I mean, I had some great actual teachers in school. They all tended to be my Latin teachers. So I ended up taking like way more Latin than is sensible, but I just kept following my great professors. 
and uh, didn't really have any good coaches. And then I started to meet people who really became my spiritual mentors. And that was a lot of people who did, you know, offered different psychedelic medicine experiences for me. Obviously, Don Howard, I've talked about at great length. He was one of my great spiritual mentors. Ted Decker, another great spiritual mentor. Joe Rogan was a mentor in a lot of ways, even though we became really close friends through the process of growing on it together. But I learned a ton from him. And even some other friends like Bodie Miller, I would say was a really powerful mentor for me when we became friends. But there's just a long, long list of people who in person were these great teachers. And of course, all the great literature from you know Marcus Aurelius to of course, Don Miguel Ruiz was big. Even Carlos Castaneda, despite the fact that he's kind of a crazy person, if you read his biography, his Toltec philosophy was really impactful for me. So the list is extensive. I love hearing you say that you had a lot of, of mentors, people pouring into you that fed into your success, not only in you know what you do for work, but in your life in general. And I feel like mm-hmm. a lot of people need to hear that, that we're not just out here being one-man armies out here like we need help we need that guidance from different areas because we face adversity a lot of people can't emulate the success that you've emulated but you know when they look at you they can share a common denominator of adversity so i want to ask you you know what was the greatest moment of adversity you faced in your life and what was the emotions and thoughts going through your head like take us through that moment i think some people can point to adversity is a single thing. But for me, it was like a compounding series of events that all coincided. And that oftentimes is the case. I think that's where we get the old adage, when it rains, it pours, right? Like, it just was enough things. Any one of those things would have been hard enough on their own, but altogether, it was almost insurmountable. And this was end of 2017 going into 2018. It was I was in a polyamorous relationship with my partner, Whitney, and that just went as haywire as it could possibly go. You know, she started seeing, she had some different lovers at that point that were very difficult for me to handle. And uh, I had some health challenges that came in. I had significant business challenges from a series of different things and friendship challenge. I mean, literally everywhere across the board. And then ultimately, I got into a car accident as well. So just completely mangled my face in the most, in the strangest of circumstances where I just fell asleep or passed out. I didn't fall asleep, but just passed out, blacked out in the middle of the day, sober, you know, like just drinking a sparkling water, going into the office to do a podcast and accelerated into a guardrail. And I think they're all connected. I think I was just carrying such a burden at that point where my relationship, my you know romantic relationship, my friendships, my business, my health, everything was just falling apart all at the same time. And then I got in that car accident and that was a hell of a time. I mean, that whole, it was like a six month stretch there. That was one of the most challenging times I could possibly imagine. How, what were some of the early, like small victories that you saw when you were able to pull yourself out of i mean there had to have been a, a narrative of like the world is kind of crashing in on me in a sense like what is happening like, why is this all, all happening to me like how did you go from feeling the pressure of all those things to moving towards a more positive mindset or maybe even the mindset of gratitude like even being grateful that maybe that accident happened like how did you create that shift so that's the process of alchemy that you're discussing and alchemy is the you know 
philosophical idea that you can turn something that's lead and heavy and dark, and you can turn that into something that's bright and valuable and gold. So the lead of these experiences, how do you transform them into gold? And it's little bit by little bit. And um, I would find different little victories, you know, so in the depth of my struggle in my polyamorous relationship, I remember I just couldn't bear it anymore. And I'm not one who prays very often. I like, I'm kind of like one of those things they have in the hotels, like in case of emergency, break glass. I'm like, in case of emergency, start prayer. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's at the, it's my very last resort, which is very silly. I should obviously, you know, implement that a lot more often, but prayer was something that really came in and helped me in that scenario, just and gave me this kind of wisdom and inspiration to, to keep going. I think in, you know, in business, it was a matter of learning how to my, let go of my attachment to really face my fear that the business could fail and then let go of my attachment to its success and attachment to everything that I'd accomplished so far. And there was a great relief on the other side of that. So I learned the lesson of, you know, non-attachment with that. There was also different issues of validation that were wrapped up in my friendships and different ways in which those friendships weren't perfectly clean either. So I got to learn those and understand those. My health issues then taught me about certain boundaries of my personal practices and behaviors that I needed to kind of hold on to and enforce. And then all the way across all of these different categories was my ability to share honestly and openly everything that was happening with me with the world because every little pearl of insight that I gleaned, I could then share it on a podcast or an Instagram post or something. And people would also be able to heal from my struggles. And that was actually probably the most important aspect of alchemy. It's just whatever lesson I learned, I could share it. And then in the sharing of it, I knew that I was helping somebody else. So ultimately it was that act of service that, you know, helped pull me out the most. Yeah, I mean, I, I resonate with, with all of what you're saying, especially just how so many different areas of, of life needed work, like just needed cleaning, needed refining. And that was definitely me. You know, I had to go through all those things and realize that, wow, like my struggles may actually help somebody else. Like I'm not somebody that's going to want to go on a mountaintop and say whatever I'm feeling or whatever I'm going through. But eventually that became my purpose through everything. Something that I didn't mm-hmm. even expect at any moment along the journey that this would be something that would make me give me that feeling that I was searching for in so many different things. And I think that is, I think that's amazing. How did you get involved into creating clothing brands and starting your podcast? Like what inspired you to get into all these different avenues to be who Aubrey Marcus is? Well, the podcast was really because Joe Rogan invited me on his podcast early. You know, I was like episode 46 and episode 110 or something like that, like really, really early on. And I loved the format. It was just, it was really fun. It was just a great way to share ideas and have a great conversation. And, you know, he was encouraging everybody who was, who he could talk to about to to start a podcast back then. I think he still does to a certain extent, but it's a lot more crowded now, but he really believed in it. And I believed in it too. So the podcast was really a natural progression of something that I was very comfortable with and came naturally to me. The clothing brand was something that I'd wanted to do for a long time. And finally, with the resources that we had available on it, I could do this kind of spinoff called the Aubrey Marcus Collection and actually create these cut and sew pieces that were designed and manufactured in Italy and kind of created them to my specs. 
it turned out to be a horrible business. I mean, it was a lot of fun and I still wear some of the clothes, even though it's been a couple of years since we did a production run, but I still wear some of the clothes. It's one of the longest lasting clothes, unsurprisingly, because I designed them exactly how I wanted them. And I think potentially it could have worked. But the thing about clothes is it really starts to work at scale because it's not a high margin business. First of all, unless you're just doing like prints on t-shirts where you get the t-shirt for $4, it's cheap. And then you print something for $2 and you sell it for 20. And that's pretty good. But when you're talking cut and sew, you know, until you get the quantities really high, you're not getting good margins. You also have unused inventory, right? Like you don't get all the sizes, right? So you don't sell out of all the sizes. You just sell out of some of the sizes and then you can't promote them because the most popular sizes are out. So you end up with a lot of dead inventory. So it's a challenging business. You know, it's not something that I would recommend. And also one thing that I learned is if you're really going to be successful in anything, you have to really go heavy. Like you can't just dabble in something like making a clothing collection and have it be successful. Maybe if you're Kim Kardashian, you can, you know, if you're Kanye, you can, and just like say like, yes, yes, no, no. And then have a giant machine and your name to carry it. But for us mere mortals, you know, if you really want something to be successful, you got to back it with a lot of chips. A couple things that I wanted to just revisit that you shared, because you're really speaking Darren and I's language. Darren and I both come from the world of recovery. Both have been public about our sobriety. Darren's on a way larger scale than mine. But I think what you had said was just, you know, in the pain, like how the lead with alchemy, right? The heaviness, the darkest thing becomes, it's about turning your pain into purpose in a sense. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's powerful to hear. And even though my path might look different than your path and Darren and mine look a little bit similar, but that I feel like for me personally, that is my past is my best asset. But for a while, being a man and being prideful and really caring about what other people think, I did not want to share that. But it was mm-hmm. like the moment that I did share it, everything changed and I found my voice and found my purpose. And it almost humanized me in a way where what I thought people were going to be worried about, they actually found a deeper sense of connection. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, every time I've shared something vulnerable, then the response has been overwhelmingly positive. It's absolutely contrary to what our schoolyard experiences were, where we're dealing with, you know, 10 year old idiots, you know, or just bullies. Like the world has those 10 year old idiots that have grown up to be 20 year old idiots. And there are some of them on social media. But for the most part, you know, you have a lot of like kind and grateful souls that you're going to be reaching. When you were talking about your in 2000, 2017 or 2018 or the combination of the two, what would you say was like the absolute lowest point for you? Well, I think the, uh, interestingly, the car accident, even though it was kind of the final straw, it was the turning point. So even though that was ostensibly what appeared to be the worst, it was actually the turning point. It was where things in my relationships got better after that. Things in the business started to get better after that. I had an instantly positive outlook on that. So whereas it might've seemed like, obviously, outwardly, that was the most traumatic thing. I mean, if you look at the pictures of me from the accident, it's gnarly. That was actually not, that was not that difficult. You know, like all of in my polyamorous relationship, everybody was being really loving. All my friends were being supportive. A lot of things kind of sorted out. So the hardest point, 
was, you know, I took the, I took the romantic stuff really hard. And I can remember one day in New York, I was actually on my book tour and I was doing my New York book tour and I'm just in the hotel by myself and, and my partner was out with her boyfriend. And, you know, a lot of people, when I'd say, talk about polyamory, they're like, oh man, it's amazing. Living the dream. You know, you get to be with your partner and then you get to be with other women. Like, yeah, you do. But your sweetheart, that girl that you love so much also gets to be with other men. And sometimes those men aren't the best guys. And sometimes she might prefer them over you. And that's like, that's devastating. And uh, there's levels of devastation. And I was never really ever able to overcome it. And in this particular instance, she was with a guy that was really just the hardest for me to, to deal with, just by far the hardest. And I couldn't handle it. And I was just sitting on the floor and it's this feeling of, not knowing if I was going to puke or cry or punch a wall or like I had no relief. It was like just no relief. The emotional pain was so much. And I'm just like lying down on the floor crying. And like, I can't even cry in one position because if I stay still, you know, the thoughts just overwhelm me. That sticks out to me as the darkest point. I remember another time in Miami, you know, that would, that had to do with a, a very close friend who you know, we actually didn't speak for several years. Still haven't really recovered our friendship to the level that it was. And it was really difficult for me. And there was, so there was a couple moments, but those two moments, it was really about the relationships. There was one moment with the business where literally our CFO at the time, um, <laughs> our CFO at the time just walked out of a meeting and said, you guys, are going to be bankrupt in three months. I've run the projections. And so I'm leaving now. And we were like, are you fucking kidding me? You're just walking out the door now? <laughs> Is that really? And, uh, and yeah, he just walked right out the door. I mean, but that moment, I guess, because the business turned out so good and, uh, and we called it cash apocalypse and we, you know, we've joked about it enough, but that one didn't really hit me as much, but the relationship ones, those devastated me. So that moment in Miami where, you know, I tried to reach out to my friend and he just wouldn't talk to me and where I was really struggling in that relationship. Those are the two really low points. And, and it makes sense. Relationships are the most important currency that we have in this life. And uh, it was far more important than on it potentially going bankrupt was me dealing with these really close relationships. What did that last partner of the girl you were dating at the time, the one that you struggled with the most, like what did he teach you most about yourself? That's a very good question. I think, I think what he showed me is that I had a lot of association with love equaling sexuality, like sexuality and worth of love was really entangled. And one of the things that really hurt the most was he was a particular type of sexual animal that was, that it was just a flavor of ice cream that my partner was into at the time. And that flavor was a pretty, it was a pretty extreme flavor. And that meant to me that clearly she loved him so much more than me because of what their experience was with that. Whereas in truth, she was just exploring some kind of novelty in a different type of situation than she was normally used to. And, but to me, it was the clear proof 
that because of their sexual experiences together, that she loved him so much more than me. And that was probably what that taught me was that you have to disentangle this overwrought importance and connection between sex and what that means as far as matters of the heart are concerned. Because in truth, she always loved me and she always loved me the most. But I would interpret based upon what she would do that whether she loved me or not. And, you know, that was my own shit to work on. It sounds like you've been through so many different experiences and so many different highs and lows in your life. And I feel like that can, you know, change our perspective a bit, change what we're ultimately grateful for at the end of the day. A lot of times it's success, a lot of times it's business. But like you said, the, the matters of the heart hit more when your business uh, looks like it might fall apart. So I want to ask you, you know, what are you most grateful for today? I'm most grateful for my wife, you know, my wife, my health. I feel like the universe has been, there's been an unseen hand that's been guiding me and supporting me and loving me the whole way. So I'm grateful for all of that. You know, I'm grateful for, but those things really stand out to me. Just this kind of, this general support that I've felt from the universe, especially when I look back in hindsight. And um, I have amazing friends, amazing family. My wife's incredible. You know, my health is strong. There's so much to be grateful for, but gratitude is a choice. I can choose to be grateful for anything. I can choose to be grateful for this water that I have right here. Like really be grateful for that. Man, this is good water. And I'm really grateful for it and really feel it. Or I could just drink the water and not have a second thought about it. So gratitude is one of the most important choices that we could ever make. And we can be literally grateful for everything. Every sunny day, every kiss, every bite of food, every breath that we take you know, like we can be grateful for everything, but we have to choose to be grateful. Otherwise, we'll be grateful for nothing. Yeah, it's like repetitions, right? Some of us are really good at Instagram scrolls. We get a million reps of those a day. Comparing ourselves to other people, we get our comparison reps in. <laughs> yeah. When it comes to the gratitude, it's just it just seems almost too cliche at some point, or like it's just like too cheesy. But it's honestly like the cheesy things that really allow me to be present and really enjoy my life and realize like. Hey, like I don't know why there's this negative stigma around this because this is what really make, gives me that feeling that I've been looking for this whole time. I search for it in so many different areas and wonder why I can't find it. It's because it's right here, right where I'm at with what I'm doing, what I'm experiencing. So, that, mm-hmm. that's powerful. yeah, man. That damn judge, that damn judge creeps in and tells us it's cheesy and it doesn't work, or you're writing the same things every day. I mean, that's what still shows up for me to this day. But yeah, I'm glad you touched on that, Aubrey, because I, I do believe gratitude changes the way we see the world. And like Darren was saying, it's a practice and whatever we're in the practice of is going to grow stronger. Mm -hmm. We get in the practice of comparison or distraction. We're going to get, we've gotten really good at that. So we have to have practices that bring us back home. And I've heard you talk multiple times about like, we need to do everything to get still. So I'm just hoping maybe you can touch on that or talk about your practices or what that means to you. Yeah. The mind is, is the noisy thing. It's a very noisy thing. And really the truth often comes to us as a whisper. And it's, imagine trying to hear a whisper in an arena that's chanting different things or a restaurant that's just cacophonous with all the different sounds coming from all the different tables and dishes clattering and all. That's the way our, our mind is. But somewhere across the room is 
a whisper of, you could call it your higher self, you could call it your soul. Language makes it confusing, but it's, it's the best part of you. And that's whispering the truth. But in order to hear that whisper, you got to quiet all the waiters, you got to quiet all the other tables, all the judge, all the ego, all of the, what the body is screaming for, whether it's more caffeine or, or, you know, nicotine or alcohol or whatever the body's screaming for to take a nap or whatever it is, but you got to still everything and, and be able to hear that whisper of that one aspect of yourself that's looking at you across the room. So in order to do that, there's a lot of different ways. You know, I think a meditation practice can be really effective, but you got to get to the point where you actually get still. Otherwise, you just become aware of the whispers. And that's fine. That's part of the process. It's just to become aware of the whispers, become aware of the whispers. But ultimately, to get still, you have to get to the point where the whispers stop. So I think that's where a lot of people get to in their meditation journey is they just sit there for a little while and become aware of all the noise but they don't actually have the patience and the practice and the repetition to get to the point where the whispers where the whispers can be heard and the noise actually stops. So in order to assist with that, a lot of times, I think one of the easiest ways is to find a way to get into some kind of flow state. And I think that's why we like, you know, different practices like surfing or sometimes sports or an activity, maybe it's artistic painting or something like that. Some activity that we can do that it's more like an active meditation walking in nature, you know, and, and I think when anytime we relax the eyes, we can also relax the mind. And, um, you know, Andrew Huberman talks a lot about this. He's a neuro-ophthalmologist and you relax the gaze and then you start to take in more of a landscape rather than focusing on individual things, your thoughts become quieter immediately. So there's a lot of techniques like that you can use, obviously ecstatic dance, is a practice that I use. This is something that culturally has been around in pretty much every culture from the beginning of time is some kind of ritualistic dance practice where you collapse your mind and it's just sound and your own movement. A lot of times you can get real clarity there. Breath work is another amazing practice. A sensory deprivation tank, another amazing practice. And of course, psychedelic medicine has been a huge part of my journey. And this is prolonged periods where you're in direct communication with that higher faculty that you have inside. Can you touch on that a little bit more? Because obviously Darren and I both come from the world of recovery and there might be a stigma around that for some people that are sober, but maybe touch on your beliefs around it and maybe your own experiences of witnessing people that have been struggling with addiction, or maybe they're, they do have long-term sobriety, but they're still stuck and how that's benefited them. Yeah, I mean, the the problem is, is that people have categorized these different things as drugs just because the government has decided to make them illegal or not. They're allies. These are allies and these are medicines. And I know drugs. I've taken drugs too. Trust me. Like, there's not a, not a lot of things that I haven't tried. So I know the difference. And I also know the difference how to, when I use medicine like a drug, when I use an ally like a drug, I try not to do that. You can smoke weed just to, you know, eat Doritos and have them taste better. You know, you can like, and that's fine. I'm not here to judge. I'm not here to judge. Or you can take mushrooms just to go to the club. And I used to do that. I don't think it's quite possible to take ayahuasca for fun. <laughs> that's one of the few that is always work no matter what. But ultimately, when you do it in the right context, it ends up creating a hyper sobriety. You feel like you're more sober 
than you've ever been in your life, that you've been drunk on your own ego, drunk on your own thoughts, drunk on your own former addictions to being yourself. And for one time in your life, you're like, I'm fucking free. I'm free of being absolutely inebriated on the habit of being myself. That's something that I think people often don't realize until they've experienced these different profound you know, healing methodologies, these allies. I did a, a, done a few podcasts with Luke Story, who's was a long time, long time recovering addict. And we've had this very same conversation where he had the same thing, 20 years, wouldn't touch a single other thing. Because to him, at the moment that he got out of an absolute, quote, sober state of mind, it was one thing was going to lead to another thing was going to lead to another thing. One beer was going to inevitably lead to an eight ball of cocaine in a motel with some hookers. Like that was just the way it was going to go no matter what. Like that first sip of beer was just a slip and slide to that. But the, it's the opposite with a lot of these different plant medicines. And it doesn't mean that there isn't a possibility for abuse if you use them like drugs. I'm not saying that there's absolutely no possibility of this, but in the right context, you really recognize that that's the most sober you'll ever be. You know, it's the most in communication, communion with your true self, which isn't addicted to anything other than just being love, <laughs> you know? This is backed up also by a lot of clinical trials that show uh, cessation of smoking, cessation of alcohol abuse, cessation of iboga as a plant medicine from Africa that has unbelievable record of curing opiate addiction, whether it's heroin or whether it's painkillers. So many different of these medicines are starting to have studies emerge showing massive, massive benefit to addiction. Because really addiction, if you've listened to Gabor Mate, Dr. Gabor Mate, it's an attempt to solve a problem, but it doesn't solve the problem. It just masks the problem, right? But these plant medicines can actually help you get to the root of the problem and see where the source of the problem is and see it clearly and then transcend the source of the problem. So it actually, even being sober can stop you from exacerbating the problems of being intoxicated, which can be life ruining, right? So sobriety itself is inherently a much better choice. Absolutely. There's obviously no doubt about that. But it's not inherently going to get you to the root of the problem that got you to drinking or doing coke or doing painkillers in the first place. It might, you might be able, but you usually have to have some kind of other practice that's going to get you to the root of the problem. Sobriety won't do it on its own. It'll just stop you from compounding the problem with a solution that doesn't work, but makes your whole life worse. But these plant medicines can actually get you to the source and help you repattern and reprogram and re-understand why that aspect of yourself is that way. And I think that's why it's so effective and so opposite of what you would think about as something that masks the problem. This actually illuminates the problem. So in a way, it really elevates your consciousness to a perspective in which you can see more rather than feel less. Interesting because one of my my teachers, he's a Buddhist monk, and he would say meditation is all about getting to the root of the problem, digging it out, and healing yourself. But as you're saying this, I'm like, that can take a long time to happen, right? So it's almost like the plant medicine is streamlines this because your life's at stake. If you're caught in the grips of an addiction, you might not have the time to meditate for five years to get to the root of the problem where in a sense, these plant medicines can streamline that whole process and in a sense, save your life. Yeah. And it's not a guarantee. 
And it doesn't mean that anybody who's an addict who's listening right now and coming off a bender just goes, buys a bunch of mushrooms and just downs them and says, I'm going to cure myself. That's incredibly risky. Like you want to be in the hands of professional. You, know, you really want to be with a guide who can, if this is the right medicine for you, if it's the right time, you want to be in a really clear, stable place in your mind. You want to have the right music. You want to have the right everything. You have to really treat these with respect. You know, and so I do think that these can be a really powerful tool, but I don't want everybody just to race off and go find some mushrooms or find the sketchy ayahuasca circle that's in your neighborhood and just be like, yeah, fuck it. That's not the way you got to really, you got to really do your research, do your homework and make sure that you're coming to it with the right amount of respect. And if you do that, I think it, uh, it has the potential for amazing results. Sounds like it's been a great avenue to, to unpack things for you. And in that, I'm sure that you can look back on younger versions of yourself and, you know, wish you could maybe share some information with him that you found now. And if you did have the opportunity to do that, to share with a, a younger version of yourself to maybe help them navigate some potholes or some issues, what would you share with that younger version? I've, I've been asked this question a lot and I always give the same answer. But the funny thing about that is, is for five years, I've been giving the same answer. And that answer is that I wish I could go back and tell myself to enjoy it more, that it's all going to work out and just enjoy it more. But I've been telling my, I've been telling my hypothetical younger self that for five years and I'm still not doing it now. So that's what's, that's what's interesting. Maybe I'm incrementally better at it incrementally, but fundamentally there's something about information that has to be earned and learned in the ways that it has to be earned and learned. Like I'm still working on that every day now. And I've had the information. I know I have my goal. I know what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to really cherish and enjoy my life more. And like I said, maybe I'm 5%, 10% better off than I was five years ago when I started saying that. But it's the process, you know, and so I don't even think there is the information. It's like this, it's creating this, it's creating this paradigm in which if you just had the information that you could do it, no, you couldn't, you know, you still got to fucking go do it. You still got to, you still got to do the work to do it. And it's, it's a, like you said, man, it's the reps. It's like how many reps of stopping myself and from a place of worry and stopping myself where I'm eating really fast and gritting my teeth and stressed about the next thing that I have finding that place of stillness, you know, going to find my wife and giving her a kiss and making love in the middle of the day and just finding those times to really, really cherish and enjoy my life. And of course, I'm still extremely goal-driven. You know, I'm never, I enjoy that too. But I don't know, man, I I, I just, (laughs) I'm tired of trying to give my younger self advice that I can't take now. So I guess, uh, I guess nothing. I guess just live your damn life and and do your best, you know? <laughs> That's an incredible angle. There's something beautiful about allowing things to unfold and come to you exactly when they're supposed to. So that is a, that's a brilliant way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've tried the other way. <laughs> it's not working so well. Real quick. Can you touch on, I've heard you mention multiple times, this whole idea of um, Lakota, the whole idea of like, today is a good day to die. I think that's the the same. Can you touch on that? Because someone that might interpret that the wrong way, but I 
I feel it. I try to live that, this whole idea of an impermanence and allowing death to be our teacher. But can you just touch on it, like why that matters to you and why you talk about it often? Yeah, the idea when you say today is a good day to die, that means that all of your relations, all of your relations, the whole way that you lived has been so rich and so full that you have nothing left undone. You have nothing left unsaid. You have nothing that you haven't experienced. You know, that if it's your day to die, and they would say this before going into battle, and there were some practical reasons to say that, so they wouldn't be afraid of battle, and so they would embrace the potentiality of the mortality, so they'd have courage. But really, it was a philosophical declaration that I've lived in such a way that if today is my last day, it is a good day. I'm like, today is a good day to die. And it doesn't mean they want to die. They want to live to old age and be one of those chiefs with the long war bonnets of all those feathers that signify the acts of bravery. Which, by the way, if people are wondering why it's so offensive to wear headdresses, it's because each one of those feathers represents an act of courage that was given to you know a chief or a, a warrior from the tribe. So that would be like we even know with ourselves, like we don't wear an army jacket and put a bunch of medals on it if you haven't been in the service, right? It's really like a legit deal. <laughs> so I think everybody knows that now, but I don't think people really understand like why, but that's really important. But of course, they wanted to live to that old age and be abuelos and abuelas and grandfathers and grandmothers. But nonetheless, if great spirit or if the creator wanted to take them at any point in their life, they lived with such fullness of heart that it was okay to go then. It was okay to let go. And that's become like an ideal for me, is to live with that fullness of life and fullness of heart, that it would be okay if I went. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm so, I really want to live in such a way that I really embrace life with the, to the fullest extent. And comparatively, I probably do a good job, but I know what's possible for how how I can live because I've tasted it in brief stretches and and that's the way I want to live. And so I haven't been able to say truly, okay, today is a good day to die because I'm still, it's not even about the work that I have left undone. I think it used to be that. It used to be about the work that I have left undone, the books that I've yet to publish. Right now, it's just, I haven't lived this life and lived it in a fullest way that I know is possible to be lived. And the, again, I've lived a fucking amazing life. I'm not going to denigrate the incredible nature of my life. But I've also, because it's been so incredible and because I know how deep that portal goes, I want to go all the way. You know, I want to go all the way before I say goodbye. So, but that's, so that's my goal. I appreciate you explaining that because, you know, I, I could see how people could take that the wrong way or just be absolutely frightened by what that means because that causes them to take a look at their life that they may never have before. And mm -hmm. if there's somebody that, you know, is just hearing this now for the first time and that sets off a light bulb, what would you say to that person? They may know what's holding them back, but they haven't necessarily done anything about it. What would you say to that person? Well, the thing that's holding us back is ourself. It's really ourselves. We live in prisons of our own creation. And we've been taught how to make and build these prisons by society. So it's not like we invented them ourselves. We were taught how to make them by our parents, by our teachers, by our coaches, by our peers. When we place ourselves in these prisons and the, the trick is to let ourselves out. 
let ourselves out of the prison of judgment, let ourselves out of the prison of the fear of death and the fear of pain, the fear of all of these fears that we have, and to really liberate ourselves from these cages that we've created. And, you know, it's an interesting time that we're in now because there's more cages now than ever in in that are available for us to place around ourselves. And sure, there's restrictions that are actually, you know, I'm not here to argue the sensibility of these restrictions and people can have their own opinions about that. But one thing that I know for sure is that fear is the virus. Like fear is the virus. And there's never been more fear in the world that I've ever seen than right now. And I think this is really highlighting how afraid we are as a culture. So I think we really need to deal with our own fear, our fear of our own mortality. Because interestingly enough, the people who are the most afraid of what's happening in the world right now are the people who are also most afraid to live. You know, it's like coincidentally, the people who are most afraid to die are oftentimes the people who are most afraid to live. The fear, because the fear is universal. You know, like fear is not specific. And because it should be that the people who are living the most should be the most afraid to die, but it's not. It's the opposite. And this is just my opinion. It's not like there's a statistical study. Are you afraid to live? If yes, you know, check this box. Are you afraid to die? If yes, check, rate this one to 10. But just see if that feels true when I say that, because I really believe that fear is the universal virus. There's just one virus to rule them all. And it doesn't mean that COVID isn't a real virus and that whatever, fucking herpes is a real virus. I understand there's real viruses and I'm not one of those people who doesn't believe that there's other things, but the biggest virus is a mind virus and the mind virus is fear. And that's what's creating the cages that we're in. And I think that's the thing that we have to overcome because our natural state is a state of love and freedom and liberation. And, you know, I think naturally that's what we'll return to when we start to remove all of the fear and all the delusion and all of the rampant need for validation that we get from the deep wound of self-rejection where we don't love ourselves and we don't feel like we belong. And so we try to prove something to other people or prove that we're better than somebody else because we're doing this thing or we're, we're vaccinated. So we're better than you or we're wearing a mask or three masks. So we're better than the two mask people who are better than the one mask people who are better than the no mask people. You're not fucking better than anybody. Nobody's better than anybody. We're all equally as good. All of these value hierarchies are bullshit, you know? And, and I think internally now that doesn't mean that it excuses all manner of behavior and all criminals should not go to jail and all that i'm not saying that i'm just saying that intrinsically our worth is not determined by our actions like we're all equal truly we're all divine beings truly and if we can really understand that and stop rejecting ourselves for all of these different categories and then start to let the fear dissipate you know, I think that's how you, that's how you step into this philosophy of Hoka. Hey, stop fearing the conversations that are too scary to have. Stop fearing putting down boundaries in relationships that aren't healthy. Stop fearing all of these things that we're afraid of. Stop fearing that people aren't going to love you anymore. If you speak your truth, if you, you know, fly your freak flag high and wave that thing around, like be you, like, don't be afraid and, and don't make anybody else afraid by your own judgment of them either. And just allow each other to to really flourish by allowing yourself to flourish. And so I think that's kind of where my head and my heart are at in, uh, in answering that question. I love the answer. I love your words. There's always something that gives me the chills and it makes me emotional when I 
in a sense, maybe see three guys, guys, especially with Darren. You know, I do believe Darren won't say this out loud, but I'll tell you, I believe he's in a sense changing the conversation in the NFL. There's multiple guys that have come out and shared their own sobriety. Darren has a teammate who came out as gay, right? And it's it's just so cool to see. And it brings a lot of gratitude to my heart. So I just want to acknowledge you back, man. Yeah, thank you, brother. I appreciate that, man. Appreciate that a lot. Before we wrap up, I just want to ask you, we got to give love to the people that have held us down and that have been through things with us, through tough times, through great times. If you had one person you could give a comeback story, shout out to, who would that person be? My mom. My mom. From the drop. I mean, it's she's been un, she's been unbelievable. And I'll tell you a quick story about my mom. So obviously I've had a lot of success in my life and uh, you've kind of rattled some of it off in the bio and a lot of people think that's what makes someone successful. And so somebody came up to my mom and said uh, recently and said, aren't you so proud of your son, Aubrey? Aren't you so proud, Aubrey? And my mom looked at him all funny and said, what do you mean? I've always been proud of Aubrey. And I was like, <laughs> that's my mom. You know, it doesn't matter. I haven't earned her love by all my success. And because I've shown up in the world a certain way, she's loved me the same from day one. She loves me now. And no matter what I go on to do or what I go on to accomplish or if I totally fuck up and, <laughs> and whatever happens, she's going to love me the same every day. And so, yeah, she's been the one holding it down for me always. I appreciate you. Of course. Appreciate y'all too. All right, we're out. This is what I represent. Staying true till I'm six down. It might take a little bit, but every king's gonna get crowned.